0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of, well, two for the price of one, because we're going to be talking about a film coming out very soon called King Rocker a film about Robert Lloyd and the Nightingales. Um, This is going to be uh, premiered on Saturday, February the 6th, on Sky Arts, 9pm. And um, after that, who knows, probably on DVD and elsewhere. But uh, this is going to be with the comedian Stuart Lee and also director Michael Cumming, who worked on Brass Eye and Toast of London and a lot more. So... After several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the, uh, yes, reasons behind the film. Stuart, Mr. Lead, please tell us more.
1: Well, um, I'll start on this um, because uh, Robert came up with the idea of it. Um, When the Nightingales Nightingales got back together, and they've now been together, of course, the second time longer than the first time, which is great, I think. Um, Rob asked me to open for them because he knew I was a fan. So I did, and, and, and obviously Ted Chippington used to open for them as well, and has done since. They had comedians opening for them, and so I met him, and I've got to know him over the years. And about ten years ago, he said to me in the Wheat Sheaf Pub on Rathbone Place, uh, north of Oxford Street, London, he said, oh, "Do you think it would be a good idea to do a documentary about the Nightingales? A sort of funny rock documentary, like the Anvil documentary about how we're unlucky and whatever?" And I went, "Well, yeah, but it would be good, but..." The Ambu documentary, because the Nightingales are a much more interesting proposition, I think. And um, so I sort of asked around, and it was, you know, it's really impossible to generate interest in anything like that through conventional channels. Uh, You just can't do it until the the people die, basically. And then, um, and then, as luck would have it, after years of kicking the idea around, I. Found out through a convoluted uh, path of connections that Michael, who I already knew, he directed the pilot of Comedy Vehicle and a, and a live DVD I did years ago, um, was a Big Nightingales fan um, and, and he was a director. And basically, you needed someone who would do it for nothing because they liked it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Which is a very similar story to the, the wedding present and George Bess, whereas a guy was sitting there watching some sort of amateur football team and uh, happened to realise after sort of several seasons that the guy next to him was one of the original drummers and thus the seed of the film came out, whether you saw the the, uh, the film or not, I don't know, but that's mm. how that one started. So the, these things are sort of very strangely sort of unplanned, but sort of brilliantly sort of, um, yes, they, they start to happen. And once, and once you had the idea which is kind of interesting, because I've been doing this show, the CD6 show now, for about five years. And one thing that I've noticed, and you probably have as well, is that suddenly there's lots of films coming out from things that happened 30-odd years ago. There was one on, you know, Frank Sidebottom, the wedding present, George Best. There was the slits, the chills, the go-betweens. And, um, yes, so there seems to be a passing of time, 25 years is what I've got, when suddenly things become a little bit more like, actually, should we just go back there and sort of examine it and realise it was probably better than what we remembered it or, or realised it, it was. Did you have that? Did you, have you sort of thought, God, this is a bit strange. We're all suddenly making films about things from that period of time.
1: Not about uh, the particularly good. It's just that, the, that you, that people like me and Michael reach an age where we have the, um, the, the connections or the means or the abilities to be able to cover the things that we're interested in off our own backs, uh, even when mainstream media won't commission it, and you know when it was 20 years from punk, that was happening a lot for that period because um, the, the people that had been 20 when it happened were now in their 40s and so could, could do stuff about it. You know, it's um, I think it's it's. It's sort of to do with that. What do you think, Michael?
2: Yeah, I. Funnily enough, I proposed the idea of a documentary about Robert Lloyd thirty years ago (laughs) to the (laughs) BBC, and uh, they immediately rejected it. And I didn't have the money or ability or now now to sort of do it on my own then. And it would have been a different film then, but that would have been a film about him sort of being in the Nightingales and then having trying to have this very commercial career when he released his solo album, which was a very different. Sort of proposition to the Nightingales. I,
0: what year was that? Was that like nineteen
2: ninety? Ninety, yeah. Okay, yeah, it was okay, basically so
0: his his Tonight album, wasn't it? Or Never, Never Let Me Down. That was you know the <laughs> very, very kind of vibe because I listened to it and it's very. Yes, who knows? I mean,
2: great songs and great lyrics, but I think probably suffers a little bit from the production of the time. Maybe yeah, you know. I don't but, know. Um,
0: Nick and Song's got some strange lyrics. It seems to mention the word, yeah. Hanking well with a W. Yeah, that
1: song, the anchor that they, they can do that now as the Nightingales now, and it sounds totally like it should be a Nightingale song. Oh,
0: okay, you know? yeah, it's
1: not, it's not the um, it's not the songs. It's just that an, an, an uncratchless amount of money was. I mean, if you look at the session musicians on that album, incredible people. Ali Bain, the greatest folk fiddler in the British Isles, is on it.
2: <laughs> yeah, and it's got you know. Uh, Members of the attractions, ex-Smiths, on it. You know, it's got a lot of the sort of who's who yes. of that period. And and it's he had a second pre- solo album, sort of planned as well, which um. then he got dropped from Virgin, and which we've heard the tapes of that. And again, that there's some you know really interesting stuff on that, and not the kind of material you'd imagine somebody like Robert Lloyd doing.
1: <laughs> I didn't know about we were sort of two thirds into the way of the, into making the film, when we were at his house filming a bit there. And he went, oh, I've got these tapes here. And what's that, you know, because it's the second solo album. (laughs) (laughs) On a tape recorder, one bit of it he'd accidentally taped over at some point. And us and the bloke from Fire Records, Change were sort of going, oh, my God, what are we going to do with this? Has anyone got it not where you've taped over a bit of it? You know, and I think Tank had. He was in the Nightingales. And so, you know, that second album is knocking around now. Something will happen to it.
0: Yes, and making, making the film, one of the problems you might have come across, I don't know, is, is material from that time because now everything gets uh, you know, recorded all over the place. You can't move for the, for sort of someone recording something. But you realise now that um, looking back, everyone thinks, "Oh God, I wish I'd you know either filmed something which was a bit unlikely because it would have been very unlikely. You know, the equipment wasn't there, but at least photographed it." How did you get around this kind of creative problem or process of making it suddenly a bit more interesting rather than just Robert sitting at home?
1: In- well, if there'd been more footage, we wouldn't have been able to afford to license it anyway because we've basically done this on a wing and a prayer. But, I mean, there was what there was, wasn't there, Michael?
2: Yeah, I mean, there was actually surprisingly quite a few, but I didn't think there'd be very much at all. We knew that there was this famous arena documentary that was made about John Peel, uh, where he picked two or three of his favourite bands. Uh, I think the Skids and I can't remember who the others, were, but, but but there was some really good footage of them from that period. Um, and so we knew that existed. And, and I'd got a f- sort of memory of them appearing on this kids' TV show, Razzmatazz, and watching that. And then I wondered if I'd actually just made that up and I couldn't quite believe that that would have happened, but it had. But yeah, and there was a few other bits we found. I mean, there isn't a a huge amount. It's funny, I was watching, I don't know if you've seen that documentary, End of the Century, about the Ramones. Uh, I was watching that the other night. And for some reason, because of probably the CBGB scene at the time, there was a lot of amazing footage of them performing really early on. Um, but, But, you know, there wasn't, you know really anything of early of the early early nightingales at all and and i believe probably well nothing of the prefects i would say
1: yeah well, then we found this thing where they're on german television uh of performing on a flatbed truck in a um in a in a market square that was good
0: yes and do you sort of looking looking at that sort of period now um i mean it's kind of an interesting period because because um, you know thatcher gets in in seventy. 70- 79 and then during that early 80s there was a lot of unemployment Those job seekers allowance enterprise allowance so a lot of those sort of indie bands from the 80s they all had that one year of sort of basically you know as long as you had a thousand pounds in your bank account you could just say I'm, I'm whatever you know I'm a writer I'm a musician and the government were like oh, thank god for that that makes it all look better and out of that you know all these kind of quite quirky bands like Stunt, Big Flame, Bog Pig Bros you know, Terry and Jerry, you know, they all suddenly appear, don't they? And, and obviously the Nightingales seems to have that kind of, a lot of them have that kind of, I hate the term, but outsider quality to them. I mean, when you sort of went back and started the film, did you sort of bring in those kind of aspects of what was happening kind of socially and politically at the time?
1: I tried to, because I think it's, in a, in a way, the part of the film is a sort of elegy for that lost period where, where you know you could go on enterprise allowance for a year you could there was housing benefit there were squats there uh, you weren't if you had been a student you weren't in massive debt there were all sorts of ways round things in fact jeff dyer has written quite wrote quite a good essay about this he called it a sort of postgraduate university of unemployment you know where you you could sort of become self-educated or pursue your art in the cracks between uh, responsibility you can't do that now everyone needs a mobile phone everyone needs a credit card people are getting unpaid internships rather than going on the dock it's just that that sort of window that was created in the 80s for music and for comedy actually which even when i started in stand-up it was still that very free world has, has gone and, and the nightingales and rob lloyd very much came out of that i think
2: yes yeah for sure i mean i i um started as a director on the enterprise allowance scheme decided that I would call myself one and then sort of became one, you know, so it did sort of work and it took me off the unemployment figures and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, I mean, I think when we originally thought about doing the film, I think that exactly what you just said was would have maybe been a bigger part of it, but because the store, we got so involved with the story and then bringing in this idea of the King Kong, um, sculpture into the story there wasn't really room to explore the idea but it is a it is a really interesting you know a whole sort of area on its own really
0: yes well i i suppose most people wouldn't sort of understand what that was all about but as you said there was there was the sort of benefit system which was good and you know council tax and housing benefit so you weren't going to be in debt you know you might have you know a hundred pound debt but it wasn't going to be thousands of pounds debt i mean you'd have to have a, a really incredible drug uh, in the habit
1: sorry when it was the 30th anniversary of punk Um, I think uh, Boris Johnson was mayor of London at the time and he was part he was you know tangentially involved with this celebration of London the punk city Uh, and of course that it would never have been that city under the sort of policies that um, these people have put in because there wouldn't have been the flexibility and the the lack of debt and uh, you know you, you couldn't have you couldn't have had that kind of thing happening in a modern city.
2: No. And then, of course, you know, off the back of that, somebody like Rob Lloyd starts his own record company, Vindaloo Records, from a pub across the road from his house, essentially. And, you know, within a year or two has got one of his acts are on top of the pops. So it's sort of, you know, that that's amazing
0: that those things could and, and you know, continue to happen at that period. Yes, well that, that's quite a fascinating point because it isn't just the band. He's not just the musician and the writer. He does set up a record label. And I did an interview with him a few years ago and it was kind of Vindaloo Records that sort of almost stopped him being an artist. Do you do you sort of cover this also in the film? Because I guess you're talking about we've got a fuzz box and we're going to use it, who went from just kind of like, oh yes, we'll we'll play a few sort of songs at a you know someone's party just for a laugh and then suddenly find themselves kind of with their classic album Boston Steve Austin.
1: Well, I think I think that the group, ninety Nightingale actually fell apart because of his commitments to being a rock's Bengali. You know, he's quite honest about that, and the others were a little bit resentful about it to this day. That they were sort of waiting for him to finish whatever he was doing with Vindaloo um, as a subsidiary of Warners and with managing Fuzzbox and whatever. And it just kind of seemed to ebb away in that period. He couldn't do too many things at the same time.
2: Yeah, <laughs> but in sort of classic Rob style, I don't think really he ended up making much out of the fact that they then got signed to a major, you know, um, probably in a shrewder time or with somebody else maybe more in charge of that side of it, they might have realised that there was probably a, a decent sort of deal to be made on that. But I think in the end, he sort of let them go, like all great uh, Tony Wilsons do.
0: Yes. <laughs> but I guess unless you're, you're very kind of cunning and clever and you understand what the contracts are, you probably don't understand what just signed away or we'll not have signed in the first place. So going back to the film, did you have it very sort of, the narrative all sort of sorted out before you started or did you just have to sort of, you know, see what what came your way as it started to de- develop?
1: Oh, we knew that um, there were some distinct phases to it. There'd been the Prefects, then the Nightingales, then Rob was sort of a success really with, with Bindaloo and, the, and Fuzzbox and getting a solo deal with Virgin. Then he's kind of missing for the best part of 10 years. And then the Nightingale's come back and he works out how to do that in probably a a less damaging way than before. And um, so there was that shape to it. But I mean, we were were lucky that there was really only the two of us involved in the decision process because the film had to keep changing and twisting around that basic story because Rob would remember things. That's really changed it. That we then had to kind of shoot off and try and pitch together. I mean, the whole story about you know, hanging out with the Ramones when they first came to Britain, we we only really realised that in the closing kind of week of putting it all together. And we had, some luckily, Danny Fields, the Ramones manager, was in the country, and and um, he said he'd meet us, but he didn't want to speak to us. So we took a camera along anyway, and then he liked us and did speak to us. So you know, it was it was lots of things were. Very haphazard about it, but I mean, the weird thing about it is when you came to edit it, it, it ends up following the classic sort of mythic structure of a of a Joseph Campbell hero's journey kind of thing, where Rob starts out, chases the prize, loses everything, and then has to draw it all back. And I think he was resistant in some ways to the narrative being imposed on him in that way. And he's very funny about it. You can see a number of points in the film where I'm trying to get him to say the thing that will make the story work at that point. And he sort of blocks it in a really funny way.
2: <laughs> yeah. I think the, the thing that I found about doing this, because neither Stuart and I are really, you know, we're not documentary. I mean, I've never really made documentaries before. We've both been doing comedy all our lives, um, which did help to an extent with the film like this, but, but what what I found was very freeing and very liberating. Having spent most of my life working with scripts and trying to make jokes work, and was just the fact that it was just us doing it. There was, you know, we didn't really have any particular, you know, we weren't really financed or have executives or backers or anything like. That. So we could just, as you said, we could just f- sort of follow the story and cut a little bit, have a look at it, think, oh, okay, well, it would be good to do that, and then just go off and do it without having to ask anybody's permission so it gave the film a sort of flexibility and 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 it enabled us to you know to just to react to things
0: as they as they happen i was just going
2: to say have you actually seen the film david or are you just guessing
0: i'm literally guessing on the trailer well i'm just
2: gonna i want to say that you're making some good guesses and good questions because i only just thought shit i bet you haven't seen it and we could have Sent you a, a copy of it, but maybe it's more interesting to hear about it and then be really disappointed when you actually
0: see it. It's, it's, I think it's what life's think, all about.
1: I, think, I mean, we had to. We had two things in mind. First of all, we wanted it to be something that people that really knew about the group would like. I mean, but to be honest, I think people that know about the group will be just delighted to see all that material put together. But really. It, that it had to work as a film that anyone would like, and, and we've had really good feedback from people that don't know anything about the Nightingales, have never, ever heard of them. And that's because Rob's story is an interesting story, and he's a very likeable man. And um, it's very... Pl- I mean, in the, in the Ronnie Scott documentary that's on at the moment, you know, Ronnie Scott dies at the end, a, a clearly a little bit unhappy, having um, got n- not been able to play in the way he wanted to, and, you know... It's not, it's not kind of resolved. Whereas this is actually a feel good film, you know. <laughs> Rob disappeared for ten years. is it's fronting a workable version of the Nightingales that is as good as any, uh, and you see him having a fantastic gig in a pub in Cam in, um, in uh, uh, Hackney, you know. And so it's, it's sort of, um, it, it, it ends triumphally, and yeah. um, so it's, it's a good, it's a good story.
0: Well, it's interesting you mentioned Danny Fields because it was one of those. When I once subscribed to Netflix, kind of going, because I just love my, you know, it used to be BBC. BBC Four on a Friday night, you know, old men's rock documentary. So anything was good, and I remember seeing the Danny Fields one, and was always really impressed because there was that moment when he's talking to the camera and, and he's going, "I really need a pee, I really need a pee," and then they obviously have to occasionally go, "Okay, you better go," but I'd never seen that in a film before, and I thought, "Oh, I really, for some unknown reason, you know, apart from the fact he worked with the Doors, Nico, Iggy Pop, and everybody else, and seemed to get completely." you know, ended up losing, a bit like Phil Silver's character, didn't he, you know, he's like, you could have made it, oh no, you've lost again, game, you know, but you've got a great story, so actually the Danny Fields kind of story, you know, that way that was put together made it feel that you could be quite loose and not really worried about touching it all up and making it kind of, I don't know, glossy, I suppose. Sadly,
2: Danny Fields didn't want to go to the toilet when we interviewed him, but we did manage to persuade him to be interviewed on camera. And he also gave us an amazing wealth of photographs. The reason why this, just to go back, because you haven't seen the film, the reason why he was in it, apart from the fact that he's brilliant and he's Danny Fields, is we discovered really when we just about finished the film that Rob was one of the first, you know, sort of big Ramones fans in the country. And in Danny Fields' book of photographs about the Ramones, we suddenly realized there's loads of really clear shots of him with the band hanging out with them he stayed around with them for the weekend Danny Fields wrote him a letter say you know asking him if he could he maybe would run their fan club and all that sort of stuff he hadn't mentioned any of this to us we just you know it's one of, another of those great oh okay you didn't tell us that <laughs> and and as Stu said it's just a total coincidence that Danny happened to be in London and then, you know, after talking to him, he said, well, you know, feel free to use any of these photos. So there's some fantastic pictures of him and Dee, and him and Joey hanging out and joking and, you know, really beautiful black and white photos as well. Not just
0: horrible little sort of Polaroids, really nicely made photos that's what i actually realized doing sort of lots of these kind of interviews with people is the americans photograph things really well and they've got a great book you know great books on them which i've sort of been interviewing because again it's like 30 years ago there was like cbgbs or the mud club and you thought god they had a really good photographer All the texas punk scene from the early 80s and they going, oh yeah we've got this book and these amazing pictures where in the uk there's like a couple of crappy pictures of these kind of like club nights and you're thinking you really—it's such a shame that you didn't have a good photographer who just went along for two years and took these photographs. So yes, Danny Fields, his book on the Ramones is a classic, really. Because the interesting thing with the Nightingales—it does have that classic five-year narrative, doesn't it? A band gets together, they sort of make a sound. John Peel plays it. They get the single, John Peel session, first album. Things are going well. The second album, mm, not so good. They realise, you know. And if any bands ever do America, they always come back broken and sort of broken as well as so they just hate each other so the nightingales does have that kind of interesting story but then like you said there is part two after this strange kind of solo album
2: well yeah and that that the, the the part of the missing 10 years that Stu was talking about when rob wasn't uh directly making music he started he was still in the business for a little while and he became a video a pop video producer and made lots of pretty big uh uh, pop videos uh, with Stephen, with the, the poet Stephen Wells was the director, you know, uh, and writer of these things and um, they, they became pretty successful at that and made some some, some big uh, videos and um, so the, he did that for a while and then I think just got disillusioned with the whole lot and ended up as a postman. Um,
1: he, also, he also got to the point where him and Stephen Wells wrote a, they wrote a sitcom pilot for BBC Two and um, they were offered a chance to film it. But in between the meeting where they were offered the chance to film it and getting to the pub to celebrate having been offered it, they had a sort of argument about how, how it should be done, and it never happened. It's <laughs> incredible. in my line of work. Just that's the, the ultimate goal would be to get that sort of break. And they just kind of fluffed it, having been given it. It's so unusual. No one gets given that, never. And uh, But he, he, there's only one copy of the script left. It was in a brown envelope in Rob's house. We managed to recreate it. We did a table read of the episode with uh, Kevin Eldon, Paul, Partner Andrew Neil, Sean Walsh, Bridget Christie, Nish Kumar, the sort of people who'd have been in it if he was casting it now. Really, loads of it was really funny. It's got this strange ten minutes in the middle of the film, which is a table read of a sitcom that was commissioned, a pilot, but never, never made. They just sort of walked away from it. Um. And the end of the end of Rob's video career, we could never get to the bottom of it, and we weren't really able to put it in the film, but it involved um, a video for Richard Marks, which was a soundtrack of the animated film Anastasia, which for some reason he was commissioned to make for as little as possible. <laughs> We're not sure. Yeah, the his son told us it ended up with him being thrown out of a moving car somewhere but we could never really get to the bottom of this enough to put it in so the missing the missing 10 years we've done our best to cover it but some of it will remain remain missing
2: yeah and what what you'll probably find is that you you know a lot of the videos that he produced without realizing he pro- produced them You know, there's a famous Saint Etienne one and various ones that when I saw it I thought oh yeah I remember that and then of course you find out he was the producer of it
0: (laughs) (laughs) yes and you must feel doing this and having that loyalty especially to the sort of that sort of musical scene in in the UK was that the music they're now doing sounds I think is probably better than it did than what they did in the very early days It, it sounds almost more like Captain Beefheart with John from the French on drums, basically.
1: Well, I I, I really really love that first album, you know, Pigs on Purpose. Um, uh, although, it, it, uh, and what I think they're doing now sounds like that, but with a more muscular sort of uh, production. And and um, you know, there's there's a really great opening sequence where Michael cuts between the arena footage from 1980 and the most recent live footage we've got of them, and it does work really well. It's different, but it is part of a continuum. And uh, you know and and there's a live footage we've got from the last gig we shot of theirs that's just um superb and, and it and it's not like some documentary about a band that come back and do a tribute to their old and old version themselves. There's still an ongoing concern coming up with new stuff and um that's a really important part of it but yeah. I think i don't they don't like all the best ones those groups they don't dwell in the past. it saves them having to learn the old stuff as well.
0: <laughs> well i remember robert saying when they came to the norwich art center on that tour probably two years or three years ago they weren't going to play any of their old stuff because it's like they were just bored of it and you can understand as an artist why you wouldn't you know as a comedian you wouldn't want to do jokes you did 30 years ago so why would you want to do them now
2: yeah and i think also because you know they weren't this hugely hugely famous brand it's not going to have people screaming for you know track three on pigs, and pigs apart from me and stew but you know um it's nice when they occasionally do and in fact when we film them they did do i think one old one and it was really interesting just to see that that as you say slightly more muscular version of of um of what they were but the, yeah i mean they are it's great that their, their stuff is you know does sound different now but there is something there is some dna obviously apart from rob and i think part of it is maybe to do with they've always had really interesting drummers the nightingales drummers that play in slightly different ways to normal drummers um hard to put a finger out, but you know originally paul uh appley and and darren garrett and and now, there's something you know that 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 through line does continue in some way through the the rhythms.
1: Well, yeah, they're, they're not really fixed to a particular thing. I mean, I know this is a C86 podcast, but Rob, I think Rob was asked to go on this tape didn't for some reason. They asked that there for some reason.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: he wouldn't appear on it. Yes, you know, he never well, and he and he rejected punk in 79, he was immediately disillusioned with it, in fact in the, f- in the film he says about their fourth gig they ended up on the uh, the White Riot tour with The Clash and they were so disappointed with the pop stardom aspect of it they weren't expecting The Clash to behave like that but he said they- he was immediately disillusioned he was fast tracked into disillusion and he thanked The Clash for that otherwise he might have spent years believing in the punk ethos so he wasn't a part of that he didn't, um, didn't-, he didn't want to contribute to C86 even though loads of the bands on that would talk about people like the Nightingales and the Fire Engines and Joseph Kay as being their sort of spiritual forebears. And um, then uh, he, he cleverly managed to avoid the Britpop scene, which he would have been a perfect fit for if he'd managed to get that that um, virgin career over the line. So in a way, I mean, he makes a much better... Julian. When I, met, I, met, I interviewed Julian Cope a few times, and once he said to me, you have to get through being a has-been and then you're allowed to become a legend. And I think... <laughs> He's a legend because he's never been a bean, right? See, he wasn't even a bean, so he didn't have to become a has-been. So Now he's a legend because he's not, it's not like he failed to be a thing in a particular time because he never um, attached himself to any of the uh, centrifugal forces of those times anyway.
0: Yes, well, I think that that, that sort of five-year narrative thing is quite interesting because most bands don't make it beyond it and they don't suddenly have any ability to know what is coming next you know they they have that two years off and then the next wave of kids the 16 to 18 year olds say they want their thing and they don't particularly want to hear somebody else's thing that that's you know five years old because you just think when I was growing up you know and I started becoming an episode of Top of the Pops in the early 70s looking back I think god the the Beatles had just finished but they felt like they were just completely gone it was all you know it was sweet slave gary glitter so you don't you don't really want to sort of worry about what paul and john is having for breakfast do you you want to be in gary's gang basically
1: nothing was archived and the past wasn't as accessible as it is now but, not, but i don't know if that idea that we go through different phases is the way that young musicians feel today because everything is available to them so they they're kind of all things simultaneously and they can take a little bit of all different things without in in, uh, in, in you know the i forget who it was one rock writer described, said that popular culture used to be like a rocket ship shooting off and letting bits of it flow away, fall apart as it followed its trajectory, and then it would move on to the next bit, but it isn't like that and everything's sort of in orbit simultaneously. And I mean, you know, you get you get you get that you get groups that sound like they're from this, don't you? And they've chosen to be to be that. And uh it's um it's uh kind of confusing.
0: It is confusing. So after Ted Tubington Shirley Collins, now The Nightingales and Robert Lloyd. Do you have any, you know, now you've done this film, are you like, God. Yeah, I mean,
1: I mean no, the Shirley Collins film wasn't me. It was F- Fire produced it. I contributed to it. Um, I mean, me, me and Michael have been talking about if there's if there's an interest in this what would go well and the, the difficulty is this was a real passion project for both of us so you have to find if, you, if you're not going to be funded and you're going to have to find the best part of two years of your life to particularly um, <laughs> to- <laughs> who edited it in that shed there that you can see in um, Northamptonshire which I mean probably he probably put the most individual time into this film uh, of anyone in fact he may have spent more time looking at film of the Nightingales than the Nightingales have actually spent performing <laughs>
2: I'd say that was probably true. (laughs) The other problem is, of course, as you mentioned in the beginning about all the documentaries, there isn't really anybody left who hasn't had a documentary made about them. In fact, I think there'll be a time soon when everybody will have had two documentaries made about them. And then where do you go? Yes.
0: Yes. I don't know. I think, you know, I think the 80s, you know, you've, you know, we live through it and then you move on, you do your thing. And then suddenly look back, not necessarily, you know, huge, you know, rose tinted sunglasses and think it's wonderful, but it was just a very interesting time. So there were all these weird and wonderful bands that just wanted to sort of get together, do their thing, get a John Peel play, possibly a session, and then it was like, yeah, that's fine now, move on and do, you know, other things. So there, there are, you know, I sort of realised there are quite a lot of artists, and a lot of them have sort of got on with their lives, and then have sort of come back, like the Wolfhounds, or you know, Davey from the Brilliant Corners and still enjoying playing music and, the, and you know, the Fuzzbox, you know, members of them are still coming. So so there is a sort of, actually, we really did love it, but it just wasn't going to pay the rent. So we had to do other things.
2: We could do that uh, four-hour Bogshed
0: documentary
1: you wanted the, to do. Bo- the
0: Bogshed. <laughs> bog, the bogshed meets Stump. <laughs> the,
1: the Bogshed's not, not, not available. Uh, you know, you can't download it. It's not on CD. I mean, it is I can well it's probably to anyone not who is not already a subscriber to this podcast, that sentence would sound loose. I can't believe Bogshed is not the most available. But it is amazing what isn't available, isn't it? I mean it is amazing what isn't available, particularly you know, I mean that I mean that period that period eighty six when I mean, I've got a lot of it was I got things on flexi discs, you know, <laughs> the most perishable format that ever existed. It could a fold could ruin it. But um yeah, I mean, there was, I mean, a lot of people have done, you know, good sort of archive work on it. John Robb written wrote a very good book about that period and those sorts of groups. There's some good compilations. In fact, Darren Garrett was behind one of them, I think, compiled one of them. The old old um, Nightingales drummer of that exact mid-'80s sort of scene. But yeah, I mean, it is amazing what's what's missing. I mean, there are there are people that are less well known than the Nightingales, like Bogshed, Bogshed, or the Nose Flutes, or other other. Progenitors of that Birmingham scene, Eaton Crop, the Dutch Nightingales—you could do that. But <laughs> uh, well,
2: they actually had the Nightingales franchise for Holland.
1: <laughs> yeah, they're farmed out in Europe. Well, that's how it's going to work now, when no one can travel there to work. Yes.
0: <laughs> and did you? I mean, growing up in—did you grow up in Birmingham, by the way?
1: Uh, I did, yeah, but I didn't yeah. in that period. I didn't see in that period. I was just a little bit too young to get into and to get to the sorts of places that they were that they were playing, really, and uh, which I regret enormously. I started going to gigs in about eighty two, eighty three to get into a pub in Moseley at fourteen. Might have been a bit of a stretch because the Quaker licensing rules of Birmingham were quite uh, strict.
0: Yes. <laughs> no, I right, just coming from Norwich, where we didn't have much of a musical scene. It's interesting that there was all these indie bands that, you know, from the very things, the Cravettes, the Nightingales, the, you know, Terry and Jerry. And, um,
2: yeah. You had the Higgs, you had the higsons
0: didn't you? We what? did have the higsons but, you know, and Serious Drinking and the Farmers Boys, but it oh, wasn't, yeah, yeah. you know, it wasn't,
1: yeah. it didn't seem quite so sexy I as... I did see the very things, and that was a very, that was a really inspiring night. You know, it was very theatrical. They had a guy on, t- on stage who sat on a chair just staring at a television tune to static for the whole of it. And I thought that was really exciting. But I didn't see the cravats, you know. I've seen the cravat now. But, I mean, yeah, there was a... But Birmingham, I mean, partly, p- one, one angle in the, in the documentary is that Birmingham's not very good at promoting itself. Uh, you know, the, the punk scene and the post-punk scene of Manchester and Liverpool had... They had their spokespeople, like Paul Morley or whatever, or uh, Tony Wilson, but um, Birmingham didn't really have one of those figures and it didn't really have a record label that represented the city. And um, it did, it does, it, and, and historically, the people are very sort of self-effacing and modest and um, like Robbies, you know, they, they wouldn't sort of sell themselves. And there were loads of great things from around there, but they're never from around there from that time, but they're not really remembered as being part of a movement or part of a scene
0: yes eric's that was the thing wasn't it liverpool's famous for
1: liverpool yeah well Um, i
2: grew up in the middle of the lake district and we didn't have any scene at all um we used to get a five-hand reel used to come under which who i loved but um but yeah you know that's the sort of local arts center stuff but um but i did see the nightingales a couple of times but only towards the end of their their sort of good old country way period and the vindaloo summer special which was quite a gig when they were rocking with rita
0: and, we loved it yeah
2: well that was there sort of almost nearly you know and there's a bit which we didn't include in the film where the guitarist uh, tank talks about how that very nearly you know that was nearly bound for top of the pops and then there was a video ban the week that that was going to go and um because of that the video didn't get played so it just was shy of the getting on top of the pops position but he made a sort of interesting point i think that You know, if that had have been a a hit, then they would have been forever labeled as that sort of one hit wonder band who did that sort of novelty record. And perhaps a good point that maybe in the end that would have they would have been known as that, whereas now they're sort of free to to be whoever they want to be.
0: Yes. Actually, Richard Strange once said the same thing. He was they were two years too early for punk, so they missed it. But he's kind of relieved because otherwise he would have been on the punk circuit doing all those punky things that you still do 40 years later
1: oh, of course which is strange produced the first nine girls album.
0: oh that's true for a start of a ten anyway look i'm um, this is brilliant thank you ever so much for this and looking forward to seeing the film which yeah, is going to be on sky i'll send you one now brilliant okay then well thank you this is um the zoom thing's going to you know crash out as you probably realize as you're probably Zoom veterans, as we all become. So anyway, look, thanks. and looking forward to seeing this film. And, uh, yes, have... Sixth, a- 6th of February, Sky Arts. 6th Alps, of February. 9pm. Sky- oh, yeah, we can all subscribe to Sky Arts without subscribing to it with money. Yeah. It's free. It's free. God, what? Thank lo- you, take care. Right. Thanks a lot, Michael, and thanks, you right. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. Indeed. An emotional goodbye. And that... listener is the end of the interview a massive thank you to michael cumming director and also to Stuart lee for giving me the time for that interview Um, as he said the film king rocker going to be on sky arts saturday the 6th of feb 9 p.m and i have now seen it it's a classic if you love uh, music documentaries this one will not disappoint And no, I'm not just saying that. Um, Right. Oh, yes. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. Keep it positive. Otherwise, don't bother. Um, Yes, seriously. And also, I've done lots of interviews with uh, hundreds of people around the world that is the C86 indie world. Um, Yeah, you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Just do C86 Show. Anyway, look, I've got to go. So have you. So um, stay safe. Have a great week.